The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. Today's episode is a continuation of our two-part ASRM special. In part one, EVRMA's physicians told us about their fertility research. Today, we have Dr. Brent Hansen, Dr. Marcos Meseguer, Dr. Nicolas Garrido, and Dr. Antonio Pellicer to share some of their most recent work presented at ASRM and highlight other areas of the conference they particularly enjoyed. Let's start with Dr. Brent Hansen. Dr. Hansen is currently a third-year fellow at the Thomas Jefferson University Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey REI Fellowship Program. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Hansen, you had an oral presentation during ASRM that was uh, part of the prize paper session. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about this study? Sure. So um, very briefly, this study was looking at a technique called non-invasive pre-implantation genetic testing, or NIPGT. Um, the thought here is that in order to avoid some of the theoretical concerns regarding the trophectoderm biopsy that's associated with traditional PGT, um, non-invasive PGT samples the culture media that's around an embryo while it's developing in the lab, um, and that hopefully or potentially um, an analysis of the culture media could lead to a genetic assessment that's an accurate representation of the embryo. So um, that was the, the study. We, we took embryos that were in the lab and underwent both trophectoderm biopsy and non-invasive PGT and compared the accuracy and um, correlation between the non-invasive results and the trophectoderm biopsy results. So um, ideally, you know, we wanted to see correlation and wanted to see those results being similar to each other. Unfortunately, what we found was that with the non-invasive testing platform that we were utilizing, uh, there were high rates of DNA amplification failure, meaning that about 37% of the time we didn't get any results um, that were interpretable from non-invasive PGT, whereas for our trophectoderm biopsy samples, we were able to get a result every time. Um, we also then looked at factors that could potentially affect how often we were getting a result with non-invasive PGT, and we found both the um, day of the blast assist biopsy as well as the uh, euploid status of the embryo based on trophectoderm biopsy were factors that impacted how often we got results with non-invasive. In short, I mean, the longer an embryo was in culture, the higher the likelihood that we were to get a result with non-invasive PGT. Uh, we had about 82% of embryos failing to get a result if they were biopsied on day five of culture, whereas that number dropped to about 32% if they were biopsied on day six, and all of our embryos that were biopsied on day seven of culture had a result with non-invasive PGT. In terms of the euploid status, if an embryo was euploid based on its trophectoderm biopsy, the DNA amplification failure rates with non-invasive PGT were 45%, 
whereas they were lower, um, about 21%, if that embryo was viewed as aneuploid. So, so interesting. Why, why do you think longer culture improved the, or actually decreased the amount of amplification failure? So I think when we look at what this technique involves, uh, non-invasive PGTA is sampling DNA from the media. So in order to get an adequate amount of DNA or an adequate representation, um, an embryo just seems to require longer time in culture. Um, and one of the questions that was brought up at, during ASRM was, you know, other publications previous to this have said that non-invasive PGTA has much higher amplification rates than what we found in our study. Uh, but most of those uh, studies that have been done by the commercial entities or um, by the, the proponents of non-invasive PGTA uh, have involved embryos that have already undergone invasive procedures like a biopsy, or they've already reached the mature stage and then were kept in culture longer. So ultimately, it seems like in the clinical setting where you have an embryo that has not been biopsied yet, uh, has not reached the blastocyst stage yet, that's going to be your most accurate representation of what you know, the clinical utility of non-invasive would be. Um, and in our setting, we found that there were high failure rates and also inconsistencies between the results found with trophectoderm biopsy and non-invasive when that was done. And, and you found as well, you were saying a, a big difference between how reliable this was in when the result was actually euploid versus aneuploid. What, what, what do you think that's, that's due to? What, what do you think that changes the result so much? Well, I think, you know, in, in terms of just getting a result, what we found was that the euploid embryos based on trophectoderm biopsy were much less likely to give us a result right. on non-invasive testing. And I think that is due to the fact that those embryos are undergoing less cellular lysis, less apoptosis. They're potentially not releasing as much DNA into the surrounding environment. When we looked at, you know, the results uh, for the embryos that had a result for both non-invasive and trophectoderm biopsy, what we found was that across the board, there were just inconsistencies. About 40% of the time, uh, we had discrepant results between our trophectoderm biopsy result and the non-invasive result. And those were all kinds of, uh, you know, discrepancies where sometimes both were aneuploid, but different aneuploidies. Sometimes non-invasive showed uh, a genetic abnormality that we did not see on trophectoderm biopsy and vice versa. So really just all different types of um, discrepancies. Very, very interesting and so important to present on, on negative findings as well, right? And to know when things are, are, are not yet ready for prime time quite yet. Sure. Um, can, can you tell us uh, about, about something else you found interesting at the conference, something that, you, that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I saw during the ASRM um, lectures was related to this topic that I presented on, um, and it was looking at non-invasive methods to evaluate the genetic status of an embryo. Um, specifically, the lecture that I, I want to refer to is by Sarah Cabedo-Pinedo. Um, she is a bioinformatics uh, specialist with Overture Life. Uh, she's based out of Madrid. And the reason that I wanted to bring up uh, her research was because it dealt with sampling of culture media, but rather than looking at DNA, what they were looking at was the different metabolic profile of the culture media uh, for embryos that have been undergoing development. So um, really, they, they sampled 80 culture media samples and looked at the, um, the metabolic profile or all these different substances that are in the culture media, not DNA, um, but other, other substances. And they had 40 uh, of their samples undergoing the kind of 
teaching phase of their, uh, their profile, while, while the other 40 were the test phase. And they were able to identify over 2,700 individual substances with mass spectrometry that were present in the media. And about 60 of those seem to be predictive of either a euploid or an euploid status of the embryo. Once they categorized these, these substances as predictive, they then underwent the same sort of testing, uh, you know, using the other half of the samples to see how accurate it was. And about 97% of the time, um, they were able to accurately predict the genetic status of the embryo. Again, this was in a laboratory setting. Um, the embryos that they were using uh, already had a known PGTA diagnosis of aneuploid or euploid based on the biopsy. Um, but it is interesting to say that, you know, DNA may not be the only thing that we should be looking at in the culture media in order to determine what's predictive of an embryo status. Right. I, I actually saw that presentation too. I found it very interesting. I, I thought that, you know, it's, it's interesting that it, it probably will end up not being the, the, you know, the one answer, but rather some sort of algorithm that puts the, a bunch of things together to exactly. kind of tell us with a higher degree of prediction, probably. Right. And I, I did like the fact that they were really looking at all of these different substances and determining which ones are predictive. So of these 2,700, obviously, you know, over 2,600 of them were not found to be as important or predictive. Um, but you're, you're right, there's got to be some combination or some algorithm that's able to put this together um, if we view non-invasive PGT as something that you know, we want to consider uh, and continue pursuing. Absolutely. Very, very, very interesting. Thank you so much for giving us the time to talk to you. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate being here. Thanks for having me. Next, we have Dr. Marcos Meseguer. Dr. Meseguer is a world-renowned embryologist and currently serves as scientific supervisor and senior embryologist at EV Valencia. Thank you so much for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you presented at ASRM? Thank you, Andres. Well, the, we have been very prolific this year in, in ASRM, and uh, we have, uh, as far as I remember, eight uh, presentations in the meeting, and uh, most of them related with, uh, with embryo assessment. And uh, also we have spent some of our research uh, is focused on male infertility. Uh, we have a, a main uh, interest in artificial intelligence and also in time last technology and in invasive assessment. Between the works that we have been presenting this year, uh, that has been again, has been a very good year in relation with the number of pastors accepted. Uh, I have a couple of, of afters that I would like to underline that I think that may be more, more interesting than the others. But in general, I believe that the, 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 the year has been very prolific, I would say. Sure, go ahead. So, I mean, from those two, I, I, there is one which I've been just reviewing how has been the number of views for each one of the aspects. And the one with more views has been one presented by one of the embryologists of IBA Valencia. His name is Alberto Tejera. The, the work is, is fascinating and I really love it because it's about assisted hatching. I mean, you may find in the literature about uh, a lot of works, even, even meta-analysis about the utility of assisted hatching. Most of them we end up that actually there is not enough clear evidence about the utility of this intervention that we do in the embryo, in the blastocyst. We don't know where to do if, I mean, not talking about uh, PGTA, of course, but in the standard cycles, when we do uh, also freeze-thawing uh, embryos, the vitrification program, or in those cases that we believe that the embryo is bad quality and we think we need to help it. So it's difficult to find a clear indication 
And uh, maybe this is the main reason. Uh, during the last uh, four or five years, we have been studying a lot of events of family development that potentially are related with the outcome. And one of those that has been very unique has been the blastogist collapse. We have been describing the blastogist collapse like uh, a behavior of the blastogist, which is happening around 20% of them. We have seen that those blastogists that are presenting collapse can be wonderful morphology or not. But uh, we have seen that themes with uh, blastogist collapse are presenting uh, lower implantation potential, even 10% less implantation potential. So we have just focused the application of assisted hatching to those blastogists that are presenting blastogist collapse because we know that has a reduced implantation. So Alberto has been working in the last couple of years taking a look to those uh, blasters with plastic collapse that previously we just uh, recalled by 10 labs. Uh, those samples were frozen. And in the, in the, in the moment of uh, thawing, we just identify them and we do an assisted hatching to those blastocysts. And we have realized that uh, when we perform assisted hatching to those blastocysts, we're more or less reaching the same level of uh, implantation potential that those without collapse. So, for me, it's like a first time maybe that we have found a clear indication of assisted hatching. We know that there are others, for example, the, the zona pellucida thickness. But again, uh, even in that particular case, we are not, not, not sure about the, which is the cutoff cut of value to that, and also maybe related with the quality of the embryo. But we are, we are very happy because we have found a clear indication, which is happening in 20% of our blastocysts, and also that uh, we know that Apparently, there's not another solution, and it's easy to do. I mean, we just can't find a, a, an option. That's one of the assets I would like to underline. The other, for me, has been one in which we have uh, validated or evaluated one of the first commercially available algorithm or kits for embryo selection that has been implemented in some of the time lapse system, which is called Extend, EVA Extend. We have been done the, the biggest study of this uh, automatic software in the literature. And I mean, this is a particularly interesting thing because it's the first time that uh, the, the time lapse together with this software is doing a totally automatic selection of the embryo without human intervention. I mean, all the uh, parameters are recorded by the computer and the computer automatically is grading all blastocysts in five categories from one to five. So we have been trying to link this categorization with implantation potential which has been successful. I mean, we have seen a clear relationship between implantation potential and this categorization, and also trying to see if there was a link between these categories and uh, uh, chromosomal content or blastocyst deltoidy. In this second case, we have been unable to find this uh, relationship. It's true that the highest is the value of this, uh, this selection criteria, the more chances also in the PGTA program to have a blastocyst viable for, for biopsy but we haven't seen any link with Euclid. So in summary, I believe that is, first of all, the first time that we are able to validate a software which was developed to automatically select blastocyst. And also, is, I think it's a, a reference of the introduction of a totally automatic system for embryo grading, in this case, blastocyst, which successfully is able to select our blastocyst. So we know that it still is the beginning of this technology but we clearly see that the, the potential of this, let's say, first time that uh, we can automate one of the processes in the lab, which is the, the selection of the embryos. That's, that's awesome. It sounds like not, not only for the first abstract you were mentioning, not only is it able to, you know, not, not only did we find an, an indication for something that is 
good that you know we can use now for something, but it also provides a, a good solution to a problem exactly to begin with, right? Which is that these embryos now increase their potential. Exactly. This is why we are we are so happy with this study, actually, because when we first time discovered the phenomenon, we were okay. What could be the solution? Because also in that particular study, we just take an overview, of course, with the limitations of the of the study by itself, because we only keep the image until day five in the in the time lapse system. We did not find any link between the proportion of blastocysts that started the hatching and the incidence of collapse. I mean, we have the same proportion of blastocysts that starting doing hatching in those that present in collapse and those that not. So at that particular time, we thought that assisted hatching will, will not be useful like a solution. But at the end, we, we also need to, to try it. So this is why, I mean, just if you take a look, not to the literature only, if you just have the chance to visit labs about around the world, and my, my expertise, I've been lucky, I've been visiting, I don't know, maybe more than 200 labs everywhere around the world. I have seen many embryologists that just by regular uh, standards they perform assisted hatching to all the blastocysts in the first cycle, some of them, some of them all in the frozen, and some of them do it just from time to time, depending on the criteria of the embryology, which is very uh, subjective. So I've been able to find everywhere, just clinically, at least practically, any clear criteria of where to perform assisted hatching. Some of the embryologists were performing only to frozen embryo cycles, some of them to all, some of them to no one, no, no embryos at all, so a lot of heterogeneity in the in the literature and also in the experience with embryologists. So this is why I believe that always finding an indication or a solution to a lower implantation potential is always a good uh, a good thing for the embryology field. And also we are providing solutions, which is our work like researchers. I mean, I mean, I I like basic research, but I think this is more translational. I mean, we are just putting a solution to all the clinics to to improve the outcome. I wanted to ask you, it sounds like from these two abstracts specifically, but in general, it sounds like a lot of the, it sounds like a lot of the research we're doing in the, in the last few years, especially from an embryology perspective is, is kind of trying to almost cut out the embryo, the embryologist from the embryology job, right? Yes, it, yes. it sounds like a lot of it is trying to basically, you know, we, we kind of acknowledge that, that there is a problem with the subjectivity and the inter-observer variability and and we're basically trying to apply to, to apply a little more strict or kind of more perhaps algorithmic criteria. Yes. Um, what other what other areas are are you finding interesting in this field in the idea of kind of automating the process of making things a little more objective? Yes. I mean, I will say that from the perspective of automation, still I haven't seen too many things in the Congress or in the last not only in ASRM even in ESRE. So still. What we have seen is very limited. Maybe we, we start to see something related with microfluidics and sperm preparation. The intentions to also to uh, try to denudate all sites by using microfluidics, but nothing else. I mean, still, we have a lot of promising things in the some venture capitals, but nothing real. So it's true that the first approach to automation is the introduction of this type of technology. But I am also very interested that I've seen also some communications about the non-invasive embryo assessments, which in part are including uh, the observation of the embryo by, by monitoring with time-lapse or artificial intelligence. But also I am very, very interested 
in what's going on with non-invasive embryo assessment and also, I mean, related with the secretions of the embryos and also about the chromosome content. We, we know and also there are uh, publications coming from our own group which are describing that actually looks that this non-invasive uh, chromosome assessment is not reliable at all at this point. And I totally agree. Right, there was a presentation two days ago about that. Yes, yes. I totally agree about that basically because still uh, what they are offering to us is against embryology. I mean, we keep to, we need to keep our blastocyst longer than expected in the, in the incubator just to have, uh, to be able to analyze the chromosome content in the media, which is against them, the embryo. I mean, we are, we are going to transfer the embryo in the wrong timing or, or we are artificially extending the culture without any need. So there is a, a we're, we're increasing our diagnostic capability, but only at the expense of the embryo. Exactly. And the point. So we are creating a conflict between, between embryology and diagnostic, which is not good. So right. I think that this line is very promising and maybe, maybe there will be an increase in the accuracy, but still we're just wondering why we're finding DNA in the media. I mean, we should not find DNA in the media if all the cells are in the embryo. So if, if there are DNA in the media, it's because the embryos, lose, are, are, the embryos are losing cells or cells that are dying and are releasing the DNA. So, I mean, that's also a bad sign. If we're able to find all this <laughs> content in the DNA, something is wrong in the embryo development. So even that this line is very promising and I love it, I think that all the, all the amazing information that we are getting from the images of the embryos from, from five days and how the, uh, the, um, the softwares that are doing image analysis are, are going to be able to extract information that is impossible to get from, from our own view or uh, eyes. I mean, something that we're able to get extra that is going to be probably very informative. And also, I mean, if you think also in that, very cheap because, I mean, software or just computer, adding computer analysis is not uh, perceived. You were mentioning also that all these attempts that we're performing, even the automation is going against uh, the embryologist. And in some other cases, it's our fault because we have been unable in the last... I didn't, I didn't mean it literally. Yeah, but we have been unable to be consistent in our way to do an embryo assessment, even internally in our own lab. Right. Because it's, it's still we are, unfortunately, it's, it's the human being. We are very subjective, so it's our own fault. But I have to admit, at least in Valencia, all this research is giving a lot of work to many embryologists. We have actually, I feel very lucky, I have a, a team of seven embryology working exclusively in, in research around non-invasive embryo assessment with artificial intelligence. Also, we are putting in our field also bringing to our field engineers, bioinformatics, which are amazing and are helping us a lot also with this research. So I think it's a very exciting moment for embryologists. We will see in the next years if all this field is going to end up with uh, maybe the lose of some of the positions of the embryologists. From, from my perspective, what we need to do, the embryologist, is to just move forward, study more, uh, start to learn about also other topics, not only embryology, and then we will keep for sure working and we have a very promising future. But these are in our hands, I would say. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for your insight. You're welcome. You're welcome. We are now joined by Dr. Nicolás Garrido. Dr. Garrido is the Director of Research and Innovation at EV, as well as the EV Foundation Director. We are so happy to have you on. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Rich. 
So go ahead, tell us a little bit about your research you presented at ASRM. Well, one of the, uh, the papers that we published in the, in the current meeting uh, is entitled Accurate Measurement of Sperm DNA Fragmentation Effect on Reproductive Outcomes by Cumulative Life Birth Rates Per Embryo Transfer and Oocyte Utilized. So the idea, the basic idea is that sperm DNA fragmentation is a widely spread test, which uh, is frequently unclear on its indications, its use, and some centers ask for it routinely while others are not providing this kind of service. So there's a lot of uh, scientific information available out there with very controversial uh, messages. And uh, while DNA fragmentation in sperm seems to be related with infertility, the effect size on reproductive outcomes is uh, somehow unclear. Classically, when you uh, try to link some sperm features with reproductive outcomes, several measurements have been utilized, including pregnancy rates, ongoing pregnancy rates, miscarriages, and live birth rates. But for us, the most important thing is when you consider an outcome, which is the denominator, which frequently is uh, established as the first embryo transfer. Given that within the standard procedures on the IVF lab, lead to the selection of the best embryo to transfer, this might be biasing to the negative any effect of sperm on the final reproductive outcomes when comparing any risk factors such as DNA fragmentation. So one possible valuable alternative is measuring cumulative life birth rates obtained after having considered successive embryo transfers until a child is achieved for the patient's abandoned treatment but moreover, this approach is not penalizing the embryo blockage during the development. So this may also lead to a false interpretation about the effect of DNA fragmentation of reproductive outcomes. So we propose a new approach, and this is, I think, the main interest of our work, in order to evaluate which is the effect of having high or low DNA fragmentation in sperm, by computing the cumulative life birth rates per oocyte employed until a first life birth is achieved. Then, this is a new way to measure sperm quality referred to the number of oocytes that are needed in order to achieve what the patient's aim, which is the first uh, life birth. So from our results in a retrospective study with more than 1,000 cycles, in unselected males where DNA fragmentation analysis was done, we were able to compare among the different levels of DNA fragmentation its influence in all the uh, below uh, the mentioned uh, indicators. There were very small uh, to no differences found, indicating the lack of any influence or predictive value of such tests for unselected males. So now we are trying to better address this issue by controlling but by some uh, potential biasing variables, and also reanalyzing our data in some more specific patients' uh, population in order to better address the use, the potential use of uh, sperm DNA fragmentation analysis. What other studies did you see that that you thought was, were interesting or, or worth mentioning? Something that really caught your eye during the during the conference. It was a very interesting meeting, but to me, there was, a, as a specialist on, on male factor, or more interested on, on the, male, the male factor part, uh, there was a, a very nice interactive session concerning antioxidants and male fertility. 
uh, trying to answer the question about should men take uh, supplements or not. And this was led by Dr. Anne Steiner and Dr. Jorge Chavarro from Duke University and Harvard University, respectively. So Dr. Steiner, as the first uh, author of the famous uh, MOXIE trial, and Dr. Chavarro as a specialist mainly on life habits and nutrition relationship with male infertility. They both provided a, a very interesting and balanced overview about the topic. So basically, Dr. Steiner showed that from the results of uh, her MOXIE trial, there's no clear benefit shown by using an antioxidant combination, although some discomfort and secondary effects mainly related with gastrointestinal uh, issues might arise on, on men taking this supplement. So these uh, results are reinforced by some other uh, important trial and recent trial conducted by Dr. Schisterman, the past trial, where there is not evidence enough uh, about the beneficial aspects uh, of uh, the use of these antioxidants to fight against male infertility. The presentation also included a nice overview and a deep uh, analysis of the most recent Cochrane review of this topic by Smith in 2019, where the whole literature has been scrutinized and the info updated from their first uh, Cochrane review some years ago. And this includes a significant number of trials using different antioxidant doses, combinations, and uh, it was very interesting because although it was planned as a, a yes or no debate, it ended in a kind of a probably no or no position on the light of the available evidences. So there are a number of problems on the trials already available that probably may be causing this confusing situation, including the low number of cases, recruiting males with no demonstrated oxidative stress situations, not controlling for other potential biasing factors, for instance, related with the life habits, performing trials with compounds that have no basic science supporting or indicating the potential benefits. Also, the quality of the trials in many of the cases was low or very low. And interestingly, trials with significant findings tend to be of lower quality compared with those, those that were not able to demonstrate any, any difference. Additionally, many of them are focused on secondary endpoints, some such as sperm DNA fragmentation and sperm counts at three or six months, which do not perfectly correlate with male fertility itself. So it seems there's no one-fits-all solution, and the question is too big and probably needs to be uh, less wide and be able to address one by one or case by case, all these kind of antioxidants. For each uh, trial, uh, the conclusion is important to be only related with the specific intervention evaluated regarding the dose, the time, the product, for the specific population where it was tested, and also considering for which effect size the trial was prepared for. In this case, we are frequently unfair to conclude that the results of a single trial can be extended to other populations, other intervention, or other lower effect size. So in conclusion, it seems that uh, prescribing antioxidant therapies do not provide a clear reproductive benefit, and further studies might help to ascertain the effects on, on particular cases. 
that's why I found a very interesting and exhaustive session about, about this topic. It definitely was very interesting. And, and it's also interesting what you're saying that we, we kind of generalize our results a little too much. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Go, going back to, to, the, your, to your abstract that you presented, I, okay. I, I found it very interesting what you were saying in the beginning. And I, I think it's mentioned in the, in the introduction to your abstract, how the fact that we use the number of embryos transferred as the denominator is a problem. Um, can, can, uh -huh. you, can you elaborate a little more and explain kind of why that's a problem? Uh, I have, uh, I, I mean, I have training on statistics and uh, I think this provides with a different perspective. So numbers are frequently tricky. So it depends on how you see things or how you measure things. You may uh, take out from this one message or some other message. So when I think about the effect of measuring something within sperm, trying to relate to reproductive outcome, there are many different measurements of reproductive outcome. We are mainly used to measure things by embryo transfer. In some other cases, some interventions uh, are measured, it, its effect is measured per cumulative uh, life birth rates per embryo transfer. But I think we are missing a, a, a nice information, which is what happens with these cases where you finally are not able to conduct an embryo transfer because the embryos are blocked during the, the development. Or I think there's an interesting effect, which is the embryo selection conditioning the reproductive outcome. So if you have patient A and patient B, and the sperm from patient A is providing with uh, 10 embryos, and you at the end transfer the best one. And patient B is providing with, with two embryos, and you are finally transferring the best one. So you are just comparing the best against the best. You are not comparing the full cohort or the total effect conditioned by the sperm characteristics, the intervention on the sperm, and so on. So I think the best and the most precise way to evaluate any effect from the sperm on the reproductive outcomes is, for instance, by considering how many oocytes you needed with this semen sample in order to get the first life birth, which is the main objective of the couple that we are attending. So this is a little bit the explanation of all this, this approach. Right, that's very interesting. I think we, we definitely have like in many things in the fertility world, we, we focus on the, on the female aspect a lot more. And I think it's clear that we have obviously a good denominator when we're looking at oocytes, for example, and we're saying out of these many oocytes, we made these many blastocysts or things like that. But of course we don't count sperm individually. And that, that definitely poses a big challenge in order to, to assess the denominator. I, I see what you're saying. It's true, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Th thank you so much. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Our final guest for today hardly needs any introduction at all. Dr. Antonio Pellicer is a professor of OBGYN at the University of Valencia and is also the co-president of EVRMA. Thank you so much for making time for us. Thank you, Andres. Nice to hear you. You presented a, an, an interesting abstract. Uh, somebody from your team presented an interesting abstract uh, during ASRM regarding uh, mitochondrial DNA content. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this? 
Yes, a few year, a few years ago, uh, we developed at EV Foundation a test uh, that was registered as uh, mitoscore, which intended to measure the the mitochondrial DNA content of the uh, trophoectoderm, taking profit of the uh, of the biopsies done for uh, pre-implantation genetic screening. So we wanted to actually realize whether this test uh, was useful or not. And just comparing the mitochondrial content of the uh, trophoectoderm cells with the total content of the embryo, because uh, we all know that uh, is the inner cell, cell mass that uh, the one that uh, becomes, a, a, let's say, an embryo, a, a fetus, and is important for the, for the baby less than the trophoectoderm cells. So we asked the permission to do research with uh, discarded embryos. They were, the, these were a neuploid blastocysts that were frozen in our labs. And uh, we analyzed a total of uh, 51 and compared the mitoscore um, test, the, the data that the mitoscore provided, with the total mitochondrial contact as ascertained by a confocal microscopy. And the bottom line of the study was that, uh, unfortunately, there was no correlation between the mitochondrial DNA content, either uh, with the number of mitochondria per cell or the number of active uh, mitochondria per cell using uh, different microscopic uh, analysis. So the conclusion is that uh, although it's important to find uh, new markers of embryo viability, because we, we know that uh, around 65% of the euploid embryos implant, so there is some, something more to learn about the embryo vi viability, uh, the uh, mitochondrial uh, DNA um, contents of the trophoectoderms doesn't seem to be the, the way to go. Very interesting. So essentially, you're saying the, the mitochondrial content in terms of the, the mitochondrial DNA doesn't really correlate with how many mitochondria there are, and therefore it may not be a good surrogate marker. Exactly. That's, that's, the, that's the point. I mean, the, the main point is whether, you know, in IBF, in ART, when, when um, we we transfer an embryo, and especially when we transfer an euploid embryo, um, we, uh, we expect that the, the woman uh, gets pregnant, but uh, the pregnancy rates are between 65 and 70%, no more than that. So, um, and people have looked uh, at the, and many people look at the endometrium and, and the uterus, but in reality, unless there is something evident, like uh, it could be, for example, uh, adenomyosis or, or, or uh, uterus, which is um, uh, full of fibroids, etc., etc. So unless you see something morphologically relevant, the uterus is not that important. So, and uh, this has been shown by our group, especially by a, a paper that was presented last year by uh, Dr. Pirtea, Paul Pirtea, he showed that uh, when uh, the couples had three euploid embryos and the uterus was apparently normal, 
the take-home baby rate was about 93%. So sometimes, so the bottom line and the message from there is that if you have normal embryos, usually the, the women get pregnant and, and they have uh, children. Now, uh, in order to do it better, we need other surrogate markers and uh, mitochondrial DNA uh, content could be one of them. Others are different uh, morphokinetic markers that people look at uh, look uh, using time-lapse machines and registration with the time-lapse incubators. And uh, some others will come in the future, right? But uh, this mitochondrial DNA specifically uh, in our hands is not useful. Understood. Well, it's, a, it's an important study and it's also, it's also good to know when things don't work. Absolutely, absolutely. And tell us a little bit about um, some, some other abstract that you found particularly interesting uh, during, during this year's ASRM. I'm following for, for some years the work that uh, Nuno Costa Borges and Gloria Calderon are doing in Barcelona together with a group of, from Athens, um, the Institute of Life in Athens. And uh, it is actually a very interesting work because uh, the concept was to be able to increase the quality of the oocytes of women who have uh, undergone many repeated cycles uh, of IVF and all failed. So in this study that uh, they, they, they did first, uh, because the, the controversy about the spindle transfer, so taking the, the spindle of a patient and introducing it in a, in a donor uh, cytoplasm, which has been um, previously emptied of, of uh, its own uh, um, spindle, um, this concept, uh, the, the, the great controversy is all uh, about uh, the possibility of carryover uh, mitochondrial DNA and that the, it should, and that the, 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 the new fetus and the, and the newborn may carry um, genetic material from uh, three different individuals, the, the father, the mother, and the, and the oocyte donor, right? And this is why uh, the technique is forbidden in many, specifically forbidden in many countries. So they did a series of studies in animals that were uh, nicely presented and, and published a couple of years ago, in which they showed that the, the actual carryover percentage was very low, but they never, uh, intended before in intended before in, in humans, so uh, they got permission uh, in Greece. So the, the the study was done in Greece, but uh, they got all the permissions from the National Authority of the System Reproduction, the hospitals, IRB. So they got all the approvals. So this is a clear, registered, and uh, well done pilot study in which they had a total of 25 patients who had a mean of 5.7 IVF attempts before. The mean age of the patient was 37. So they were quite young, but they produced very um, low quality, poor quality embryos. So they did spindle transfer uh, using the, the specific technique that uh, they have uh, again described in animals. 
And in the end, the story ended in a total of um, um, 16 patients having out of the 25 having employed blastosis. And uh, after that, they uh, did single embryo transfer in nine out of uh, these uh, 16 patients so far, and six uh, became pregnant. So the, the, the pregnancy rate was really high. It was almost uh, 70%. In women, again, with a very poor prognosis with more than five cycles in the past. And uh, two children have been born, three ongoing pregnancies, and the, the discussion about mitochondrial DNA carryover uh, is answered um, by the fact that they showed that the, the carryover was less than 1% of the mitochondrial DNA from the donor. So they collected also after birth blood, urine, uh, saliva, core blood, placenta confirming that the, the parentage of the children and the origin of the donated mitochondrial DNA. So they did a complete study and, uh, and uh, they confirmed not only that they increased the quality of those uh, embryos in these patients, but also that uh, uh, they have uh, healthy children without uh, mitochondrial DNA. A carryover. So I think this is a very promising technique and uh, is especially promising when you think about aged women. No? Most of our uh, patients have abnormal uh, embryos and, uh, but they, and they are forced uh, somehow to undergo oocyte donation. And perhaps this technique uh, with uh, important technical modifications from the very beginning, because you have to work maybe with immature oocytes, but still this technique can be a new window of opportunity to, to help our patients in the future. Truly, truly cutting edge, maybe a way, like you said, in the, in the somewhat near future that we can help these patients achieve babies with, with their own genetic material, of course. Yes. I mean, the technique is controversial. The technique is very controversial because, as, as I tell you, it's specifically forbidden um, and regulated against uh, to do it in many countries. I think it included the United States and Spain. Uh, but, um, but again, these uh, data are encouraging. And um, perhaps uh, one day, and I know this is one of the, the goals of the authors is to present it to the European authorities and say, listen, here we have something that works, uh, so let's uh, think about it again and, and, and try perhaps to authorize it in, in, in some centers or under special circumstances, but definitely something to, to be considered. Definitely. Very, very interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Peter. Thank, thanks to you, thanks. Andres. That is all we have time for today, unfortunately. Join us next week for a topic review on elective egg freezing. See you soon. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next week.